The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, January 25th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I am digging out from the effects of Winter Storm Jonas. Winter Storm Jonas. And not only are we naming all our storms, we're naming them, it seems, we're, we're naming weather events for clearly going after specific pop culture references. I guess the Jonas were brothers, and there was a Joe Jonas involved. Such ends my knowledge of the Jonases. But the last one, Joachim, I think what we need to do, I personally... I prefer the effects of Winterstorm Hansen over Winterstorm Jonas. You know, a little more simpler, less sexually charged. Personally, what I think we need to do is start naming our weather events. If we're going to do this, and it looks like that ball, that snowball has rolled down the hill, either after people with just no cultural associations, Winterstorm Hortense, I cannot think of a famous Hortense, Winterstorm Hippolito, Again, maybe we'll learn about famous Hippolitos from cultures other than our own, or after Shakespearean characters. Let it be a learning experience. Winterstorm Touchstone, Winterstorm Horatio, something like that. So, as I, a little, this is just a little housekeeping. The reason I'm here in my kitchen is I was supposed to be in Chicago, but the snow said, don't go till tomorrow. So, I will put some tracks down right now and uh, join you again from Chicago. I host Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this week. I just was going over some of the accounting of the effects of uh, W.S. Jonas. They always talk about the death toll and your hypothermia and shoveling that kills people. But they always talk about the auto fatalities. And then we see a newscast with a picture of a car side of the road askew. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Hard to drive in the snow. But I question whether fatalities actually go up. I mean, everyone's inside. So early reports said... There were nine fatalities reported, and this, these were some early states where the storm hit, where the Jonas Brothers played before touring nationally. So these were some early states. In Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Virginia, a total of nine fatalities from auto crashes were reported. I looked up the statistics from the Institute for Highway Safety, and these are the total number of fatalities per year in those states. Tennessee, 995. Kentucky, 638. North Carolina, 1289. Virginia, 740. So it really comes down to, on average, there are three fatalities a day in Tennessee, two fatalities in Kentucky, four in North Carolina, and two in Virginia, give or take. So the total number of nine fatalities in those four states Realize there are, on average, you know, 10 or 11 fatalities in those four states anyway. I do wonder if auto fatalities go up. I do know that snow shoveling fatalities definitely plunge in June. But, you know, with global warming, you never know. On the show today, I give my spiel over. Well, I'll do half the roles. I'll be Marv Albert. And Jesse Eisenberg will be Jesse Eisenberg. So I'll be playing the role of Marv Albert and the actual Jesse Eisenberg, who we're going to talk to tomorrow, will play himself in therapy with Marv Albert. Don't want to give away too much. Did I say I'll be Marv Albert? But first, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Not just an airport where they can't properly measure snow, also an actual president. And as you'll soon hear, a really interesting interview. Reagan, 
is the newest addition to the American President's Library. Now, the American President's Library, which is overseen by Sean Willens and Arthur Schlesinger, they said, let's have a smart person write about every president. So you know how Chester A. Arthur got assigned and Franklin Pierce got assigned. And uh, yeah, William Henry Harrison got assigned more than an Amazon Kindle. But <laughs> Reagan, I think this is the prize, and it went to Jacob Weisberg, who is the chairman of the Slate Group and the founding editor of Slate Magazine. It's a juicy assignment, Jacob, but as every attempted or aborted biographer of Reagan has ever encountered, it's a tough assignment. The guy is an enigma. I think that's right, Mike. And, you know, some biographers have sort of gone crazy trying to write about him. I mean, Edmund Morris, you know, was so frustrated because he had more access to Reagan in office than any historian has ever had or probably will ever have to any president. He could ask him anything, spend hours with him. And what he discovered is Reagan in private was exactly the same as Reagan in public. Yeah. He got nothing. And, yeah. and he got so frustrated. You know, he, he really thought Reagan was, uh, he, he describes him as having no inner life. He thought there was just nothing there. And I just think that's wrong. And it's one of the ways in which access can be really distorting. If yeah. you can't break through to somebody, you've got a stake in thinking there's nothing to break through to. He's a member. I mean, Reagan is a member of our species. So, of course, he has an <laughs> inner life. He didn't have any close friends, though, right? I mean, even Nancy, she would cop to not totally understanding his soul. Yeah, she said that a couple of times. She said, you know, I'm closer to him than anybody, but even I hit this kind of brick wall with him, a point you can't get past. I think probably the person he was closest to in his life was his mother. Yes. But he left no record of that relationship. He, he barely wrote about it at all. She left no record. That, that I know of the relationship. So did he get really lucky? He got lucky because he had the perfect makeup, the perfect constitution to fall into people making excuses for his failures and crediting his success. He didn't construct it. This wasn't strategy that he went about life like that. Yet his flaws were not seen as flaws uh, to a degree that I've never seen in politicians. I'm not just saying that he was unduly popular. I'm saying that even popular politicians, their constituents or their their backers will say, yeah, that's a flaw. It was just never addressed with Reagan. Well, I think he had a good nature and a, a sort of kindness and an interest in relating to people in a way that made them very forgiving mm-hmm. of his flaws. But I also think, and this was you know, the revelation to me w- working on the book, Reagan wasn't an intellectual but he had an original mind and he was thoughtful and he read and he wrote. He probably wrote every day of his life. And when you go back and read these things, which I think were considered throwaway and, and negligible for most of his career, there's some really interesting insights. You and mean like the radio addresses that were considered, you know, negligible? Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, he was writing five, he would record five of them at a time between when he left uh, the governor's mansion in Sacramento in, in 1974 and when he ran for president in 1980. He was on the radio every day. He choose, chose to do that, by the way, over television because he understood the power of your medium. Like, yes, yes. That when people hear your voice and don't see you, people get tired of looking at me. But when they, when they hear you, they use their own imagination. But so he did these radio addresses, but they are really good pieces of persuasive writing. And a lot of them are about, you know, the technicalities of SALT too, and things that you can't, almost can't even uh, get, uh, understand anymore. But, you know, I read those, and my first reaction was, we give that guy a column in Slate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's a persuasive conservative, and the ideas that he is relating are his ideas, often naive, often unsophisticated, but they come from a original 
thinking that he's done and from a, a kind of instinct that I really credit. In some ways, the most interesting thing I found was this thing I found in his desk. When I was out of the Reagan library, they said after I was there a few days, they said, we want to look at Reagan's inside his desk. And I said, what do you mean? What's his desk? Well, it turned out there were these things that he had taken from his desk, from his house in Pacific Palisades, to the governor's mansion, back to his house, to the White House, back to California. These were things he held on to. And one of them was a piece of writing, never published, that he did in 1962 uh, about the Soviet Union. And in it, he says, Soviet Union is probably going to collapse at some point. Why? Because it violates human nature. It's not a political system. It's not an economic yeah. system. It's a crazy way. Nobody wa- And Reagan, you know, had this very normal instinct. How can people live like that? Academic political scientists, other people on the right, never had that thought. It's heterodoxy. It's, you can't it, say it. Yeah. And yeah. I, to the extent, I think it was a little embarrassing. He tucked the thing away in the drawer, and then he, he actually used it in one of these radio addresses, part of it, 15 years or, or so later. But you know what? He was right. And that was, a, that was the product of his originality, not of his deep intellect, but of his instinct that there's, hey, there's something here that doesn't make sense to a guy like me who grew up in the Midwest and knows what people are like. The people who love Reagan say he wasn't a phony, he wasn't a hypocrite. He sometimes would get charged with hypocrisy, just the disconnect between it being morning in America and how bad things were for a lot of Americans. But I didn't really get any sort of I think if uh, hypocrisy is defined by you actually violating things that you believe, I don't think he did that. Like, you know, on race relations, he didn't have good policies for black America, but he had great personal relationships with black Americans. And on poverty, right, as you write, pretty bad policies for poor America. But if you wrote to him, is this true? Even if he was president, he might write you back with a check? Oh, yeah. He wrote, oh, my he, God. He would send people checks. And, and then there were stories that he found out that people, I guess, when he balanced his checkbook, that people hadn't cashed the check. They yeah. kept it for a souvenir. Wait, when, he he balanced, another... when he balanced his check, as president, he's balancing his checkbook? <laughs> well, like he... in between G-rated movies in the White House? Yeah, it's the kind of thing he did. <laughs> but he would say they didn't cash the check. He'd yeah. send them another check. And he'd say, keep that one for a souvenir, but cash this one. You know, <laughs> So he, he, he I definitely he, I, he identified with people living in hard times. Uh, hypocrisy is a, is a is a tough word. Um, there are certainly a lot of contradictions in Reagan's policies. When you look at his economic plan in 1981, you know he talked about himself as a tax cutter through his whole administration, neglecting the fact that he increased taxes or agreed to tax increases in 1982, 1983, 1984, 1985, 1986, and 1987. I don't think there was one in 1988. But he, you know, he didn't. He was able to live with that cognitive dissonance. He still viewed himself as the person who cut taxes not the person who also increased them. And when he was confronted with that, what he would say was, well, it wasn't a tax increase. It was a modification of the tax cut. Yeah. You know, <laughs> look, we all have contradictions. I, I, hypocrisy implies a level of cynicism that's not something that people around Reagan ever experienced. And I think you could only use the description of Reagan from a distance. You make a compelling case that he was this unwitting Keynesian, that he stimulated the economy. And of course he did. He threw a lot of money at the military and he gave people tax cuts. You co-wrote a book with Robert Rubin, who's 
of an avowed Keynesian, and yet his actual policies at times weren't as stimulative as Reagan's were. Uh, well, you know, Rubin came out of the aftermath of the Reagan deficits, which had become a structural deficit, which had become an economic liability for the country. And in the early Clinton years, with the economy growing strongly, you know, there was a perverse effect, contractionary policy. Uh, increasing taxes yes. stimulated the economy because it gave people confidence in America's long-range fiscal responsibility, confidence that probably proved to be misplaced in the Bush years. But under Reagan, you had this unusual, unprecedented circumstance of stagflation. You had the highest inflation that we'd experienced, and you had high unemployment, and the economy wasn't growing. So what could you do? Interest rates were approaching 20%. You couldn't cut them without countermanding the Fed strategy, and that wasn't in its control. All you could do really was spend and cut taxes to stimulate the economy. So I think in retrospect, although you know, I've always thought that was bad policy because it left this deficit. I think it was the right thing to do. America was in a deep economic hole, and that jolted us out of it. I've read conservative websites and these places that wouldn't necessarily be subscribing to Slate really like this. And the phrase like, even Jacob Weisberg has to admit. But so far, even conservatives, I think a lot of conservatives are uh, rallying around the book. My purpose is more to argue that everybody's wrong about Reagan. I think yeah. I think liberals are, are wrong to be as hostile as they often remain to him. But conservatives really uh, appreciate him for a lot of the wrong things. Well, I think serious thinkers know that no one could really embody the way they talk about him at the debates, that you have to invoke him three times, and that if anyone says ill of him, you have to throw salt over your shoulder. He's really become mythology at this point. Well, you know, at the, the one at the Reagan Library, he was the, I counted, they invoked him 42 times, and they only mentioned God 16 times, yeah. which gives you a sense of the hierarchy in the Republican <laughs> Party. But, you know, they all describe Reagan as, what, you know, why do they want to be like Reagan? Well, Reagan was this figure of resolve, and he was principled and he didn't bend. That's not who Reagan was. You know, he said this, this quote I I use in the book when he was governor. He said, anytime I get 70 percent of what I want from a legislature from the other party, I'll take it. You know, he was a compromiser. He was a pragmatist. He understood politics in that way. And he was willing to go in different directions to get get closer to a goal. You know, that's how they describe people who were sellouts, you know, on specific issues. I mean, Reagan said in the 1984 debate with Walter Mondale, I believe in amnesty for people who, who have lived in this country but may have come here illegally. Yeah. I mean, he coined the, the amnesty they're attacking was the policy that he signed into law with the 1986 immigration Oh, sure. Reform. And there's tons of stuff like that. Gun policy and uh, negotiating with your enemies. And yes, all contradicting. Get you, you know, you, yeah. if not thrown out of the party, would, you know, and you imagine Reagan in a Republican debate saying, I know that bill I signed basically made abortion legal in the whole, in the whole country, but it was a mistake. I regret it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, but it's not to say Reagan was, was not a conservative. I mean, I think even in today's party, you know, you, you wouldn't class Reagan as a liberal. But on certain issues, his policies, which were more reasonable policies, have become total anathema. Right. So my, here's my last question, my last thing that I was thinking about. So your mom passed away, and we wish you our condolences. So if listeners don't know, Lois Weisberg was one of these civic forces who who engaged, who got the city of Chicago to adopt all these policies. And if anyone's the embodiment of the opposite of what Reagan would say, that government is not the solution, government's the problem, it was your mom, you probably grew up in that household 
believing that government can solve a lot of problems and be a force for good. So here is Reagan contradicting it. I hate that line. I hate that that line has gained so much purchase. It seems like a stupid thing to debate. Bad government's bad. Good government's good. But I wonder if you, if the, if it was at any point, you know, when he would say that a little personal with you. Um, well, the, Mike, the, thanks for mentioning my, my mom. It's it's kind of you. And I, the book's dedicated to my mother. You know, I certainly thought about my mother in uh, relation to Reagan. They were both products of, of the Depression and the yeah. New Deal. And they both revered a, a FDR with the difference that Reagan had this conversion in the 1950s and became a conservative. And I do and the say, Illinois connection. Uh, yeah, that, and that too. I think, you know, Reagan really developed this blind spot when he moved to the right that government could do no good and business could do no evil. And, you know, and both are, are wrong because government is capable of good and business is capable of evil. And, and to see it through that narrow lens is really reductive. And my mom was a, you know, was a, a kind of much more mature person about government. She worked, you can't work inside city government and see a lot of, a lot of waste and experience a lot of frustration. But she also saw the good that government could do at the civic level and the way that civic participation and people coming together could make a city work. And particularly, I think, when she was in the Harold Washington administration, the first black mayor of Chicago, she had this experience of, you know, a a whole segment of Chicago's population feeling its political participation for the first time. And, you know, through all kinds of things she did, I think she made people feel that government could be a positive. Doesn't mean that she thought it was always a force for good. Exactly. There's a gray area there, as with so much of life, as with the reality of Ronald Reagan, as opposed to the mythology. Ronald Reagan, part of the American President series by Jacob Weisberg, who's chairman of the Slate Group and former editor of Slate Magazine, and just hangs around the offices all day. (laughs) Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel, special guest. Our special guest is Jesse Eisenberg, who's going to be on tomorrow. And I'll I'll be interviewing Jesse about his uh, new collection of funny stories and bits. Bream gives me hiccups. Jesse's actually here right now. Hello, Jesse. Hi, Mike. See, I could prove it. Yeah, it's true. Just like that way. Yeah. And so what we're going to do is uh, one of his uh, stories, one of his uh, vignettes. (laughs) Yeah, that's the word you use, right? Yes, that's a collection of vignettes. But you use it for things like salad dressing. You use it improperly is what I'm saying. Yeah, I was going to call it a mignonet of (laughs) stories. One of them is called Marv Albert is My Therapist, and it's a dialogue between a character called me, Jesse will be playing the character called me, and I'll be playing Marv Albert. And I just want everyone to know, I do a fairly terrible Marv Albert impression. Right. Now, Jesse, how will you be able to tell that I do a fairly terrible Marv Albert? What do you have it to judge against? <laughs> right. I actually recorded this with Marv Albert, so listeners could stop now and go to the real thing. But Right. But a, a percentage of listeners will want me doing Marv Albert rather than <laughs> right. that hack who does the Marv Albert in the same way all the time. Right. Just Marv what Albert. percentage is the question? All right. Yeah. This percentage that is now listening to the spiel. And now Marv Albert is my therapist. Hi, Dr. Albert. A playoff atmosphere in here tonight! Well, it's been a tough week. My my mother came to visit me. From downtown! Yeah, and of course, she immediately asked if I was still sleeping with Sarah. Out of bounds! Exactly. It's not her business. Unbelievable! 
Unbelievable! Yeah, and Sarah won't even return my calls. Rejected! I called her like 12 times last night. A dozen! Unanswered! Well, I don't know why I'm surprised. We haven't been intimate in months. Stuck outside the perimeter. Yeah. Unable to penetrate. I guess. Just can't find the hole. That's a little crass, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I actually met this other girl, uh, Becky. A clutch rebound. Uh, she's a waitress. Another easy opportunity. Uh, she's just coming out of a messy divorce. A layup. And she said she hasn't been on a date in years. Uncontested. Everything seemed to be going really well. I actually, I took her back to my apartment. Off to a great start. We were on the bed. Great hands. Oh, thanks, Dr. Albert. But she suddenly got like freaked out and made some weird excuse. An explosion of emotions. Yeah. Pandemonium. Right, for no reason. No choice but to foul. What? You've got to foul! Sorry, what are you suggesting? With the game on the line, you've got to foul! I would never hurt her. Then that's the ball game. Well, yeah, she threw on her jacket and ran out. Traveling? Yes, yeah, so I called after called her. Called for traveling. But she left me there just stunned. Unable to recover! Yes, yeah, so I tried to run after her. Trying to stop a breakaway! But she slammed the door in my face. Stuff! Yeah, so I'm just standing there, alone, in my apartment. Just letting the clock expire. Yeah, and then, of course, I started feeling terrible about Sarah again. Back-to-back -back losses at home. Yeah. Hey, you think I'll ever get over her? And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Sorry, what? Visit your local Ford dealer to check out the new Ford SUV, the Ford Flex. What, you know I can't afford a car right now. It's the best in its class. I was never the best in my class. Have you driven a Ford lately? No, I, I can't drive. And we're back. I've been sitting here the whole time. Refusing to go away. Yeah, well, I've paid for the whole hour. We're going overtime. We are? Yes! Will I be charged? Yes! How much? Double! Double? Triple! Triple? A triple double! Did my insurance say they would cover it? Rejected! Yeah, I figured. Time for one more. Okay, Dr. Albert, I feel like I have nothing left to live for. Things are not looking good. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I should just throw myself out the window. A jumper from the top of the key! Yeah, I feel like it's the only solution. A quick fadeaway. Exactly. A dagger. Dagger? Straight down the middle! That seems a little bloody. A bullet? A bullet. A high percentage shot. That is tempting. One shot could end this whole thing. It would be so simple. A solid execution. Okay, I'll do it. Not in my house! No, 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 of course not. No, and no one would even miss me. An easy loss to get over. The world would be better off without me, right, Dr. Albert? Yes! And it counts! And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi knows a good story depends not only on the suspension of disbelief, but the suspension of alternative side of the street parking. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. We told you Andy Bowers was salting his driveway last Friday. Yeah, Will Lichtai was cilantroing his driveway. Doesn't really help with the snow, but delicious. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, although that has been changed because that was determined without using a snowboard at Reagan National Airport. The gist. Can I just register my complaint? Yes, I can. That's why I have this show about alternative side of the street parking being suspended, but you still have to feed the meters. No, you don't. This is a huge lie. First of all, there's no feeding the meters. You put your money or credit card in the meter, you get a little slip, you put that on your dashboard. But when your dashboard is obscured by two feet of snow, you really don't have to feed the meters. Trust me, this is what they're not telling you. Come to the gist for this kind of insight. But if you get a ticket, send it to the Political Gap Fest. There's three of them. They have deep pockets. Umperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. That was good acting. That was great. That was really good 
comedic, com- comedic acting. It's awesome, right? As long as I don't have to know and have to do it with my hands. That was really good acting. Thank what, you. are you like John Kasich? Like, <laughs> <laughs> see what he does with his-